Every culture and value statement is aspirational. We know that no culture is perfect. No organization, even best-in-class organizations, nails it every single day. And at the same time, I think your aspiration should be to get there. This is Inside HubSpot, where we take you behind the scenes to uncover the tactics and strategies that grew HubSpot to a $2 billion company with more than 180,000 customers globally. I'm your host, Kat Warboys. And throughout the show, we'll hear from HubSpotters, experts in their field on how we pioneered the inbound methodology, built an award-winning culture, uncovered new channels for growth, created a blog with more than 11 million subscribers, and much, much more. Whether you're a startup or a scale-up, a marketer or the CEO, you'll learn from our triumphs and our missteps that can be applied to help you grow better. Today, I am joined by the one and only Katie Burke, Chief People Officer here at HubSpot. Katie is responsible for some 5,000 individuals across the globe. And so as you might imagine, she is incredibly busy. Her time is very precious and we are delighted to have her making the time for us on the show today. Katie is no stranger to us here in Australia. She's a big hit with our media and those of you who have been following HubSpot's story over the years. But just in case, here are a few things you need to know about Katie. Katie has been with HubSpot since 2012, so coming up to an incredible 11 years. And during that time, under her leadership, HubSpot has been named the number one best place to work by Glassdoor, which is no small feat. But in addition to that, HubSpot has also been named the number one best place to work for women by Comparably and for parents by Fortune. I think this is a clear demonstration of HubSpot's commitment to building an inclusive workplace. And that's something we're going to get into a little bit more with Katie shortly. Prior to her current role, Katie oversaw global communications during some very exciting milestones, including the company's IPO. And before joining HubSpot, Katie was the Director of Marketing and Corporate Partnerships at Athletes Performance. Now, her fun fact, thanks to a quick uh, Instagram stalk by the team, is that Katie is a massive Swifty. And so with that, Katie, a very warm welcome to the show today. The most important question, let's get it out of the way. Which is your favorite Taylor Swift song? No pressure. Oh, it's such a good question, Kat. First, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be with you. It's funny. So my sisters and I actually did a Taylor Swift uh, bracket. So we actually uh, stacked all the songs against each other. And what we decided is that Enchanted is the best Taylor Swift song uh, of all time. It's a controversial pick. I got a lot of uh, responses around it, but I, I stand by it. I love the the commitment. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see that, how, you, how you've thought about that. <laughs> It's some clear dedication. The number two people always ask was all too well, but we decided that the 10-minute version, frankly, has edits. Like, it's not the actual original songs. We have to judge it based on the original, um, and that was the deciding factor in the final vote. And uh, out of fear of not offending too many Swifties out there, I won't say much more on the topic because it will reveal how little I actually know about Taylor Swift. And so with that, (laughs) with that onto the, onto the topic of culture, I think we'll start with uh, probably the obvious, but very important question, Katie, which is really your personal definition of culture. How do you talk about it? Because what I think is interesting is that, and this will be hopefully encouraging to many marketers on the call, is that you started out in marketing and PR. And so how really, I guess the question is, how has your definition, your opinion of culture evolved, not just with the company's growth, but with your experience and career in this role? Yeah. So first, very proud former marketer. And I truly believe, as you well know, that we think about kind of mindshare with consumers, but we don't think of it with candidates and employees. So part of my job is earning mindshare and the trust of our 
candidates and our employees on a regular basis. The same is so true of our prospects and customers. There are a lot more parallels than I think people realize, which I know is something you and I share a passion for. I actually would say my definition of culture hasn't changed that much, which is to me, it's always been the gap between the rhetoric, what you say you are and who you actually are, the reality. So the Mm -hmm. gap between rhetoric and reality is what culture actually is. Um, And every culture and value statement is aspirational. We know that no culture is perfect. No organization, even best-in-class organizations, nails it every single day. And at the same time, I think your aspiration should be to get there, right? So I think part of what people assume, given that my background is in marketing, is they're like, it's all about the sizzle. It's all about, you know, how you can get people excited about your brand. And the reality is we could attract a ton of candidates. If we didn't deliver on what we promised, uh, we would we would fall short. So in a lot of ways, there are so many parallels with marketing our product and making sure it delivers. So that's how I think about day-to-day culture is what we actually deliver on that we promise to our candidates and employees. And I think the goal there is progress, not perfection. You would be the first to know that we've done a lot of great things, but we're not perfect. We're scaling. We, you know, there are paper cuts of, of scale for every organization. And so that doesn't mean we get it perfect every day. It does mean we try. Yeah. And um, I love the honesty there, but we do have a shelf full of awards and trophies. So clearly something is working for us there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, number one best place to work by Glassdoor. Such a huge achievement. So, you know, congrats to you and the team. I know you'll say it's a team sport um, and it absolutely is. But would love for you to share a little bit about the journey to get there because as you've already mentioned, we're not perfect. It doesn't happen overnight. So I guess the question there is what makes for an award-winning culture? What ingredients do we need to throw in that bowl? Yeah. So I think it started with our founders. Uh, Brian and Dermesh have always been really passionate about culture. And so I think one huge asset we've had from the start is they wanted to build a generational company, but they also wanted to build an interesting culture. So both of them shared a distaste for rules that don't make sense for conventional wisdom. And so I actually think that's been a huge asset to our culture, not just from the start, but also really now. Um, and, and that applies to our philosophy on hybrid work, which we can talk about later. Uh, so I think we had a competitive advantage to start, but I think so much of founder vision is five years ahead of the game. And so when we launched the culture code, that was something I was lucky enough to partner with Darmesh on at the time. And now everyone's like, oh, our employees must've been so excited and over the moon. Our employees were really not happy that we were launching the culture code. And the reasons were twofold. One, they didn't think we were perfect at what we were releasing yet. And P.S., spoiler alert, they were right. But two was they thought if we released the recipe that everyone would copy what we had and it would become Mm. less of a competitive advantage. Um, And I think what... I mean, you know, the best recipes in the world. You could get... I could get an incredible recipe from the best chef in Australia... And the reality is what makes it special is your skill, your love, the degree to which it comes true every day. And that's true of culture too. And so I think looking back, people think of our culture as a huge success story, and it certainly is. But there have been some real meaningful, important sort of stumbles along the way. So it started with our founders. Then I would say the culture code was our first foray into codifying what makes us special. And I would say where Darmesh and I joined forces and where the team really started to lean in was how we make sure we move from aspirational to real and what we can do to create a dent in that. Um, And so a few things that I think we did that made a meaningful difference were, number one, we really listened to employees. Our quarterly surveys became a mechanism not just for listening, but for action. And in the early days, what I would do is actually measure our success based on how many things we addressed. 
meaningfully with progress. And I think that that's really important. So we started with actually listening and responding to employee feedback, which is something any organization listening can do. The number two thing we did was we really moved from an exclusive culture where we were like, you can't sit with us. And it was very much judged by the type of music you liked and the degree to which we would get along outside of work to thinking about culture add. So the best people, as you know, add to our culture, they don't fit it. And so thinking and changing that frame of reference was really important. Um, And then the third thing is just, I think when you scale culture, it's important to have a bit of fun. People talk about their rigor and the structure. And of course, we're going to talk about all those things and they're really important. But part of what Brian has always said, which I love, is that part of how you measure your love of work is laughs per day or laughs per (laughs) week. And so part of what you got to do is make sure that you're having fun while you're doing it. Yeah, I I see that reflected so much in HubSpotters, particularly the more tenured ones that have really kind of climbed the ranks. Like Kip, I I can't count the the number of times I've been in a room where people have asked him, like, what has kept you a HubSpot for so long? And not just Kip, but many of our leaders have always had that within their answer, which is I have to love the time that I'm having. I have to enjoy the people that I'm working with. And I think that is something that when people come into HubSpot within their first six months, we get people in our team at least to do a bit of a journal for those six months to kind of reflect on what really took them by surprise, what what lived up to their expectations, what surprised them. And it's always that, I guess, like human aspect, right? It's the people that we have hired that are all kind of on that same mission of, I want to come up and enjoy and laugh and have a fun time when I come to work every day. I think that's spot on. And it's certainly a big part of why I stay at HubSpot too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We've got quite a lot of leaders with really high tenure, and I think that speaks volumes. One thing you sort of touched on there was like when Damesh uh, started the Culture Code, and I've listened uh, to him talk about this a few times, so I know, you know, it, it did come a little bit from pressure of, I think, others on the board saying, you really need to take this culture thing seriously. And I don't think we were at the time. And I think it was pretty new. And I think that's that's totally okay. But how did that coincide with your timing? Because as you said, you started um, HubSpot in a marketing and comms role. So was that the formation of the culture team? Or was it a bit sooner? What, what was the timelines there? I wish I could say it was that strategic cap, but it wasn't. <laughs> um, so a few things. One, um, in running comms, I, one of my first jobs was co-leading the launch of our Dublin office. So like the actual public launch of our Dublin office. Um, And so myself and one of our former marketers, Megan Keeney Anderson, joined forces to run the launch of that. And when you run the launch of that, of course, you're running the comms, but at the end of the day, it's a lot about culture, right? We're talking about, mm-hmm. okay, what is our culture like in Ireland? How are we thinking about growing our headcount there? Um, hearing from our Irish employees what was important to them as we grew HubSpot in that location, getting to know our customers and partners in that region. And so I would say my first ever assignment sort of had an inkling of what I might get into later on because it was absolutely communications, but it was also culture. Um, And then as we went into our IPO journey, you come at it from a comms perspective, but when you go through the IPO process, people who have been through it know you have a lot of bankers and lawyers in the room, and you have to figure out how to best tell your story to investors in a compelling and succinct way. And, you know, in my naivete, I've never been part of a company going public before. I thought it was going to be very much about the financials only, about the leadership team, their expertise, and... And I think one really cool thing is the universal feedback from our bankers, lawyers, you name it, where you absolutely have to have a strong product and you have to have strong financial statements, like period, end of story, that's non-negotiable. But they were like, there are a lot of organizations that have that. The actual difference maker for success after an IPO has a lot to do with your culture and your leadership team. And one thing I really like about Brian and Dermesh that's been infused in the culture of HubSpot is this idea of being a lifelong student, a lifelong learner. 
So we nerded out. We said we wanted the IPO to be the starting line, not the finish line. We talked to a bunch of organizations. How was your post-IPO process? What happened? Who stayed? Who went? How did you think about it? And one of the universal, the only piece of universal feedback we got was our culture was amazing. And then after the IPO, we started focusing on short-term quarterly results. We lost our focus on culture. We focused entirely on margins. And it just felt different. And when people said it felt different, you could actually feel the emotional air come out of the room. You could tell it was personal for people. And it's why they left or moved on or why it was no longer as fun. And I give Brian Darmesh and JD a ton of credit. They were like, that's what we need to actually focus on. So we'll get through the IPO. This is going to be great, but we need to make sure we're thoughtful about it. So they actually asked me to run the culture team. And at the time, there weren't really culture and employee experience teams. It wasn't a very common job. And so I was worried it would be really bad for my CV, honestly. Um, And so I said, thank you. That's really nice. But I think I'd rather do something else. Um, Candidly, I thought at the time about running comms for another IPO. There were a lot of Boston companies that were ready to IPO and they were like, you have now this super marketable skill set. And at the end of the day, I was like, I want to stay and build this with the people that I love, even if it's something new. And I kind of thought if it didn't work out, I could go back to doing something else in the org. I didn't know what. But what you find about working on culture is you get a chance to work with every region, you get a chance to work with every person, and you get a chance to really think about messy problems and fix them. Um, And so from my perspective, it's been really since right after our 2014 IPO, I've been entirely focused on culture and employee experience. And it's been such a wonderful, wonderful experience and such a learning journey for me too. That's awesome. I have been here for seven years and I never knew that story about you. So it just shows there's still more to learn every day. (laughs) I love that. And you got to go to how many offices? We loved having you out in Australia as well. I love visiting our offices. It's always super fun to get to know the personalities. One of the ways in which we think about, as you well know, uh, we talk about our offices as siblings, not twins. And oftentimes, one of the biggest questions I get from CEOs is, I have an office um, culture and then I have a manufacturing plant culture. I have multiple locations. I have a call center. And how do I think about the culture? And I think just normalizing the fact that the culture in every one of your offices shouldn't be the same. And if you try and make it the same, you're doing it wrong and you're stifling individual creativity. Uh, so I absolutely love visiting our different regions and meeting our different teams. It's one of the best parts of my job. Yeah, I, yeah, I love that. And having you know been in our Sydney office from the very early days, you're right. There is that regional culture and then there is the company culture. And I think the mistake people make is there's one or the other. But I guess one tip maybe you could give us on that point is, you know, when you do have multiple locations um, and some of them as far away as Boston and Australia are to each other, what are some things companies and those local offices can do to make sure that while we're fostering that local culture, how do we stay aligned and feeling connected to our global office and global culture? Yeah, so uh, the Sydney office is actually in some ways responsible for the only change we've ever made in our values in all of HubSpot, because it was right around the time of the Sydney office that we changed the, and in my history at HubSpot, it's the only time we've changed our values. Heart are our values, humble at the time, it was effective, adaptable, remarkable, and transparent. And we actually changed effective to empathetic. And the reason for that was as you increase the size of your company, And as you increase the number of miles between said employees at that company, the ability to solve for your region or your team versus your customers increases significantly. 
and we noticed it. We're not immune to that from any company. So as you might imagine, let's say you're a marketer in Sydney, as you were, um, and I'm sitting in Boston, and it starts to get to like you could say it about me. Katie doesn't care about her organization. She hasn't been here in a few months. Um, and as a result, no one's paying attention to us. And I could say about you, gosh, Kat always pings me and asks for meetings at the completely inconvenient time. So I hear that she's frustrated with me, but my goodness, I don't have time to stay up all night on this. And by the way, does she not realize there's a lot going on here? It's not just about Sydney. We have to stall for Ireland and our employees here. And so I think you can see how truly personal empathy could make or break our relationship or the feeling of cooperation. And so part of what we tried to do was change our values to help dictate the behavior. And so then it becomes easier to say, hey, Kat, it seems like we haven't caught up in a while. I'm not going to be able to make the trip, but would love to connect with you virtually. Can we make time? I'd love to make time early morning or late my time to make sure you're not staying up late. The other thing is just finding ways to actively listen and acknowledge feedback, even if you can't always solve for it. So as an example, as you know, one of the pieces of feedback I give to our JPAC teams is we are going to work really hard. Like we had a coaching session for managers getting ready for a review season the other night that was specifically planned for just our JPAC manager plus population. That was really intentional. But we get, can we move every meeting to be more, you know, globally first? And can we, you know, we have to watch a lot of Zooms. And one of the things I talk about a lot with our leadership there is kind of going, well, if you're part of a multinational based at JPEC, there's always going to be a component where you're trying to catch up on stuff. Let's find a middle ground. And so just working through those middle grounds and driving empathy in all of our conversations. I also just think from a corporate perspective, acknowledging that you hear people makes a really big difference, even if you can't always solve it. I think takeaway for me there, empathy goes both ways, 100%. And I think for me, when I'm hiring, um, I think a lot about setting those expectations with new members that they are joining a global company. Um, and that doesn't mean they have to join midnight meetings, but it does mean that they need to be a little bit more proactive and accountable in catching up to some of your points. So I think it's something we can, companies can help set expectations on. Um, but yeah, I think empathy to your point is the biggest one. I agree. So I think we touched on that exciting milestone um, of HubSpot when we went public and to date HubSpot is 17 years old and you were here for the sheer majority of that time. A lot has happened um, from experiencing huge growth to challenging and uncertain times like the pandemic. So the word I think pivot or even adapt feels very inferior here, but I, I do want to admi ask you, amidst all of that kind of change and uncertainty that we experienced and many companies experienced over the years, how can a company stay true to its culture? Yeah. So I think the worst thing that a company can do is tie itself to nostalgia. So imagine someone new, you mentioned hiring new people to your team. Imagine if that person signs up, they're so excited about HubSpot and all you and I talk about is the good old days, the good old days, the good old days. And I think one thing Brian does really well is he says, these are the good old days. When we first started at HubSpot, it was unclear if we were going to go public. It was unclear if we were going to make our next round. It was unclear if we could hire external executives at scale. Now we have different problems and challenges. So I think part of it is just normalizing. If you are always talking about the good old days, you are rooting yourselves in nostalgia and you're looking towards the past, not the future. And that's a huge, huge mistake. The other thing I will say is part of what you have to do during tough times is lean into versus away from your value. So as an example, when the pandemic hit, you know, what you want to do is go, okay, we don't have all the information. Let's just move away from our value of transparency because frankly, I'm not a doctor. I don't have all these, the answers on stuff. And by the way, we have a lot to solve. So let's just block everyone out. We'll meet with them when we have more answers. 
And of course, as you will know, when you're in the middle of a crisis, you have to over-communicate, not under-communicate. And that requires getting comfortable with saying, we don't know when we're going to be back in the offices. We have no idea what this will look like, but what you have our commitment on is we'll keep you posted and just empathizing with people. We know you've lost childcare, pet care, that you're not able to leave the house. We're worried about people's mental health. Communicating around what you do know makes a really, really big difference. And so I would say uh, a few lessons there for leaders. Number one is control the controllables. Just focus on what you can control. Number two, in times of transition, you have to over-communicate versus under-communicate. And number three, don't set the expectation that your culture is going to stay the same or that it was better five years ago. Doing so just sets the tone for the org to look backwards, not forwards. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's time and place for transparency and it's not always possible. That being said, when you said, you know, you didn't have the answers, we moved pretty quickly as a company through the pandemic. And you've already touched on Damesh's culture code that was published. And I think thanks to that, our flexible culture was already quite well known uh, and appreciated pre-pandemic, but very, very early on in the pandemic, like what, first couple of months, you would know better. Um, HubSpot made a really big commitment to go all in on hybrid. And we've honored that commitment today, even as many companies are sending employees back to the office. So I would love to hear from you. Um, how did we make that decision so early on, so quickly? Why is flexibility such a priority for you and our leadership team? And I suppose in addition to that, uh, for, me, for people listening that don't know, what does hybrid actually mean and look like at HubSpot today? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I'll start with the COVID response. So I... Uh, I admire people who are strong visionaries on things and can see around corners. I'm not usually that person. I'm usually more of a fast follower. In the case of COVID-19 and the future of work, I had really strong conviction. The one thing I felt really strongly about was we were not going to say we're going to be back in October, then move the date, then move the date. People were at the time making decisions around where to move, where to locate their families, where to put their kids in school. And I felt so strongly that we had an obligation to them to make a decision that was long-term in nature. And at the time, I didn't know what the answer was going to be. It was fine to say, you have to stay closer and here's why. It was also fine to say, we're going to move to a truly hybrid strategy, but I didn't want us making incremental decisions because it felt really unfair to our employees and some decisions that they had to make for their future. The second realization that was very clear from the start is feelings on how people work are so personal and so emotional. And so as you might imagine, we've all heard people, and now you've seen a lot of CEOs in the news saying, I learned from being in the trenches, sitting next to Kat, and as a result, that's how people need to learn. That's why we need to be back. I commuted every day. I dressed up. We're losing professionalism. We're losing all this stuff. It You can tell just by the conviction in people's voices that it's personal. And so anytime yeah. there's something where there's personal conviction, you kind of go, wait a second. This is very quickly going to become Kat's opinion versus Katie's opinion here. And those don't tend to lead to the best outcomes for the company. And so I thought about how do I break the logjam? I don't actually want to make the call. I don't want it to be Katie's opinion what we should do because I don't know. And so what we tried to do instead was say, okay, what are our guiding principles going in? That's kind of how we try to think about most big decisions at HubSpot. And one of the guiding principles was we're going to solve for the long term here. The other thing we did was we said we were going to solve with equity and inclusion top of mind. So as an example, there were options that we considered whereby 
You could work remotely if you had been at HubSpot for a year. You could work remotely if you knew someone and had manager approval. And all those things can impact potential bias, particularly for folks like parents, caretakers, underrepresented groups. And the data was really, really clear that while a lot of people wanted to go back to the office, uh, underrepresented groups and parents were the least excited to go back because, as you might imagine, it required commutes, all that kind of good stuff. And so those were kind of our commitments going in. And what we ended up doing to unstick people's opinions was a series of panels. And what we did with the panels was we had experts on compensation and benefits. We had future graduates. So we had people who are still in university talking about what they wanted from an employer. We had senior candidates who talked about they were not interested in HubSpot, but just senior candidates at other companies just telling us, hey, how do you think about the decision on where you work and why? And then we also had people talking about DI and B just from an inclusion perspective, from an expertise angle. In listening to those panels, it shifted the energy in the room for our leadership team and it allowed us to focus on what was most important. And it was after those conversations that we were really listening where we decided to make the decision and the move to hybrid. And what I like about it is there's a model there for big decisions. Everyone has pricing and packaging decisions, big decisions around their business model. I think anytime you can move it from away from one founder's opinion versus the other and really think about principles guiding decisions, you make better decisions regardless. So to answer your question on hybrid, where we landed was that for the vast majority of HubSpot roles, so there are roles that are required to be at office. That includes things like physical security, being a front desk administrator. Those are good examples of really good business reasons you need to be on site. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But absent that, every other role has the option between three different work preferences. Number one is at office, number two is at flex, uh, number three is at home. And when we launch those, each of those has associated uh, stipends, work from home setups, all that kind of good stuff. Um, but for office, you have a dedicated desk at a HubSpot location. So in your case, Sydney, in my case, Boston, uh, Cambridge. But for if you're flex, we don't care how many times of, that you come in, but you're not going to have a dedicated desk. It will move around the office. And for folks who work at home, they will not have a dedicated space, but can certainly come visit once a quarter or so. Um, what we found in doing that was we made the options, much like a menu, super clear for what you were opting into. You talked about setting candidate expectations. It meant that it wasn't like, okay, so what you see a lot of other companies is a candidate says, would it be okay if I worked remotely one day a week? Then when the hiring manager actually extends the offer, they say, oh, actually, I thought you were coming in every day. It's confusing. It adds friction and it leads to mixed expectations. And so what we try and tried to do is productize it, make it super clear to people. If this role is posted as at home, you will not be required to come into the office. And here's what that looks like. The objective was, number one, equity and inclusion. We wanted to be clear and transparent. Number two was our commitment to overall like doubling down on our value of transparency. Number three was, if we say we remove friction from the buying process, we can't have a candidate experience that's filled with friction. So really to reduce that friction in the overall candidate experience. And so overall, as you mentioned, it means we have a lot of HubSpotters who don't go into an office anywhere any day. And unlike so many other organizations that are calling people back, we've decided that's okay and celebrated it. Uh, there are ups, downs, pros, cons, and there's been some learnings on our journey that I'm happy to share, but that's kind of the genesis for how we decided on that model. Yeah, I love that walkthrough. Um, very true to HubSpot form. Even when you know, all of those interviews to land on their, those decisions. And when it was announced, I know personally, I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. These three options are super clear. Like you say, like a product, you're picking from one of three what you want. But I would imagine, and I, I hope you don't mind me asking, like, even though you'd made that decision, there was still so much 
known unknowns that were going to come from that, right? How, and I think the big one that we've gotten to is how we keep connection and how we foster uh, collaboration, all of those things. But how did you feel shipping that decision in that moment, knowing that that was a decision, but came with still so many questions and unknowns to work through? Like personally, how did you feel? Personally, I actually at the time, so keep in mind at the time, that was still when vaccines were in their early days. So because, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, we shipped things early, I felt pretty confident in it for the next year because, as you mentioned, there was so much uncertainty. What worried me was, okay, what happens in a year and a half, two years when things are going back to more quote unquote normal, how does this hold up? And sure enough, it turns out that was the right thing to be worried about because as you mentioned, so many other organizations were like, wait, just kidding, we're changing our mind. And I think what's hard is when you make a decision you're proud of, like our hybrid strategy, it's really hard to do two things, stay committed to it, but also be open to, is it working or is it not? Like if we made the wrong decision, I don't want us to double down on it just because we had a good product menu on. So part of what we tried to do in general, I think sometimes I'm not a fan as with our founders of conventional wisdom. And oftentimes what people will do is look at other organizations' data versus their own. So when people Mm. say to me, because now I talk about hybrid work a lot, people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. We're going back to the office. I know you don't agree with that. I'm like, I love office cultures. They're great. Just be clear and consistent with your candidates. I don't think there's a wrong way to do this. But I think when it came to HubSpot, one of the things I want us to do was actually take a look. So for this past board meeting in February, because it was in every single newspaper article, I was like, let's challenge our own assumptions here. So Mm. I worked with our people analytics team to actually look at, okay, what does our productivity look like? Has it changed? Has it changed by work preference? And of course, as you well know, productivity and engagement are tough metrics to get perfectly. But all indications note that we don't have a productivity problem when people are working from home, we don't have an engagement problem. So I believe we picked the right model and I'm excited and proud that our founders and our leadership team and our board are sticking with our hybrid philosophy. And I think one learning for me is we need to do a better job making it clear that it comes with some trade-offs. So as you noted, we do have people who say, I want more connection. And this year we introduced plays called Connect4 led by our culture team, whereby there's more time for directors and managers to connect and where we do local meetups. So let's just use the example of our Melbourne team They have time to meet up over ice cream. We pick up the tab. uh, They get a chance to connect. So we believe everyone should have the chance to connect in person. However, no matter how many of those connection events you do, everyone says they want more, more, more. (laughs) And the reality is our flexible hybrid model comes with some trade-offs. And number one, we, one thing I don't think people talk enough about is people talk about the hybrid model and its impact on diversity, which obviously I'm really proud of. When we think about our sustainability commitments as an organization, hybrid work is one of the most, the biggest investments we're making in sustainability. And part of that comes with a commitment to not do a million long haul flights a year, given the carbon emissions. And so I think one thing people should be focusing more on is going, okay, I love in-person connections. I love spending time with our team, but we shouldn't be traveling just for the sake of traveling. And that's a commitment most companies and organizations can make. So it means we do intentional connection in person uh, where we can, but also that we rely on there are going to be more people who are are connecting like we are virtually. And so just embracing and sharing the trade-offs, I think we need to get better at saying, yes, you're right. There will be days. I miss the water cooler some days. I miss actually chatting with my coworkers some days. And at the same time, I still, I don't miss my commute. You can't have it both ways. And we as an organization can't solve for everything perfectly. So finding that trade-off and marketing it well, I think is an opportunity for us. 
Yeah, uh, there was so much in that answer. And I will definitely come back to the um, benefits around our diversity that this model has enabled us to have as well. But you did touch on something um, that I just wanted to ask you uh, a follow up question on, which was around, you know, with these headlines of companies going back to the office, the number one criticism or the rationale that they're using is that productivity angle, right? And the new term that came out of all of this is, you know, quiet quitting. So from, and I know we've we've looked at data, our, our own data to your point earlier. What does this look like at HubSpot? Have we seen employee happiness, productivity? Are we seeing burnout? How is the actual model impacting HubSpotters today? Yeah, so a few things. We saw burnout peak during the pandemic, like so many other organizations. And what we saw were a few of the plays that we introduced actually made a meaningful dent in those numbers. And so a few of the plays are we do no internal meeting Fridays, giving people a break from meeting culture to actually really do deep work, I think has been intentional. The other thing we've gotten better at is just saying no to more things. So shipping omissions, to say we're not going to focus on this and here's why. Um, I think one thing people talk about is when we address burnout, there's this temptation to do things like spa days or self-care days. And don't get me wrong, those are wonderful, but you have to get it to the root, get at it at the root. And I think part of focusing on our omissions and saying things we're not going to do, I think has really helped us address that. So I would say burnout overall has gone down. It doesn't mean it doesn't peak up during peak time. So as you know, we have our big global event and inbound coming up. Things like that tend to spike during different teams. So I wouldn't say, I would never sit here and say we've solved burnout. We've made meaningful progress. The other thing we've done is invested in Modern Health, which is a tool where employees are able to speak with someone external, a coach, get some help and support when they need it. Those are the types of things we want to continue to invest in. I would never say we've solved it, but we've definitely meaningfully addressed it. As far as engagement goes, we see a few different things happening. Um, number one, we see our at-home employees are as engaged as our employees in the office. The one thing we need to continue to improve is interactions between teams. So in other words, if I were joining new people ops at home, I would know people within my team, but it would be harder for me to get to know you as someone within another team. And it's even harder in another geo. So that's part of why we introduced the Connect4 strategy to make sure we're solving for that a little bit. And as far as productivity, I think the overall numbers show that productivity is the same um, across our different work preferences. And I think the truth is there are intentional in-person training opportunities that may work really well for certain subgroups. That's okay. I think we're going to try and experiment with those and see how they go. But um, said differently, most of our insights have been based on interventions and employee listing versus uh, broad sweeping generalizations by work preference. To close out our talk, I think on the hybrid model, um, I'm a big fan. It's enabled me to work remotely, which suits my needs and personality and how I work best down to the ground. And I see it as a massive perk. You know, I think I would struggle to go to an organization that doesn't offer that. And, you know, that's just one of our many, many awesome perks that I like to tell uh, candidates, but also colleagues and uh, sorry, like peers and friends about. The others include things like unlimited leave, which in my experience, people really have a tough time getting their head around that one and how that can work. Um, but also HubSpot's Global Week of Rest, which is that that week we all get to recharge and recover. Our five-year sabbatical, egg freezing benefits, so many incredible perks to support employees. Um, some of these are 
unusual. So curious to hear from you how HubSpot thinks about and decides what benefits to invest in. You know, there's so many other things we could pick, like the increasingly popular four-day week. So what guides the team when making these decisions about the benefits to enhance our employee experience? Yeah, so part of what we're thinking about is uh, one of the, my screensaver usually is you can do anything but on everything. So part of what we have to go into with benefits is we cannot address everything. So to use a few of the examples, uh, the reasons we picked egg freezing and the reason we picked flexibility were our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Egg -hmm. freezing was one of the very early benefits. We were sort of ahead of the trend on that, partially because we wanted to be a best place to work for women. And so part of what we had to do is make sure our benefit strategy aligned with that. Our hybrid work strategy, as you mentioned, is very much aligned to our commitment to underrepresented groups, to folks with disabilities, to caretakers. Um, And so those those are, to me, kind of no-brainers. What's harder are the things we say no to. So as an example, four-day work week is popping up in headlines absolutely everywhere. And in this case, we've already done no meeting Fridays and said that that's a commitment. We've done week of rest. We've done unlimited vacation. We have the sabbatical. The reality is, that's a lot of stuff. And so we're not taking on another initiative. We don't need another initiative in that space. And as you might imagine, what's hard is when our employees are super excited about something and when there's a lot of headlines, there's this natural inclination to say, we got to do that too. And part of my team's job is to find the balance between, we absolutely want to be responsive and thoughtful, but part of the reasons why so many organizations are introducing four-day work weeks is they don't offer other forms of flexibility. We do. And so just to be clear, I'm a huge fan of organizations investing in flexibility. You have to do it in a way that works for your culture and your organization and for your employees. I don't think you have to do everything on the menu to be successful. I 100% agree with that. I think we're all heading towards the same goal, which is the opportunity for employees to have flexibility, to have the options to rest and recharge when they need to, to have more work-life balance. We're just using different tactics and the four-day work week is one of them. Our ones are unlimited leave, sabbaticals, um, week of rests. My gosh, the list goes on actually. Uh, And I, I totally agree with that. So I do challenge people when they say, you know, well, why don't we look at four day work weeks? I say, why would you want one? And can you not get that, what you're looking for, which is the rest, the recovery, the flexibility with what we already have in place? And normally the answer is yes. So, uh, very, very in agreement with you on that one. Um, You've touched on this a little bit, but definitely one of those benefits of our hybrid approach is that we have been able to widen our diversity pool. I, for one, was delighted to see that we have been able to start here in Australia hiring folks based in Darwin, which was never a possibility before. And when I look at the people I meet at HubSpot these days, there are so many interesting people. My eyes are winded every day by everybody's stories, everybody's backgrounds, and it's making for a really wonderful workplace to show up in and work every day. So I definitely see a ton of the advantages there. Just wondering from, you know, your perspective and what you're seeing, are we seeing any new challenges emerge from this though? Any negative impacts such as bias in the promotion process for those that may be more visible, i.e. in the office as opposed to maybe remote working? And with that, what responsibility do you feel that my people managers have in managing this? Yes, yeah, so you raise an important point. So when you mentioned hiring in Darwin, one of the things we need I think to acknowledge is that typically in tech, your ability to access a career in tech, forget the highest levels of that career, to access any sort of career in tech has been predicated on your location and your proximity to a few select cities. And that requires a fair amount of 
uh, economic flexibility. It requires access and connections. So I think you're exactly right. Part of our Harvard philosophy is to open up the aperture and truly make sure we have opportunities available to candidates in all of those locations and to folks who otherwise might not be able to pursue careers in tech. Um, so that's certainly at the heart of what we're trying to do here. And I'm delighted to hear that you're feeling some of the impact of it. As far as potential downsides, I think, number one, to your point, the unconscious bias thing is something we have to keep an eye on. I would say we we haven't yet seen it, and here's why. At most organizations, as you know, the folks who work at home are ICs or managers, and the folks who are senior come into the office every day. Well, at HubSpot, if you just look at our executive leadership team, you've got our head of product works remotely uh, from Atlanta. You have, you know, Yamini works from home a number of days and is in the office some days. Our chief customer officer, Rob, is on the West Coast, uh, and he and I don't get to see each other all that often. He comes in some days, but mostly works from home. Our chief technology officer in Whitney is uh, mostly at home, sometimes in the office. And so if you look at sort of uh, look up at the organization, Elisa, our chief legal officer, is located uh, remotely in Connecticut. And so if you look at just all these folks at the most senior levels of the business, you can see a career that is absolutely successful without having to go in the office. I think about Nicholas Holland, one of our GMs, has been he was one of our first remote senior leaders and is super passionate about it. So what I would say is I think at many companies, you see that huge gap by role in terms of location. We're lucky enough that we don't see that. So anyone can look up the ladder and see someone more senior than them with every single work preference. Now, I don't think that solves the whole problem. So to your point, we have to keep looking at the data to make sure that doesn't creep in. And I think part of our goal actually in the next year is to do exactly what you said, which is to arm managers with much more clarity into how to run a high-performing and inclusive team. And I think that's feedback we're actively working to address now. Yeah, 100%. I think just as we're on that topic now, I think it's an understatement to say that DIMB has become a business priority. Thankfully, it's taken a while, but many business leaders are having a tough time knowing how to create meaningful change internally. So I was hoping that maybe you could walk us through your top tips, your couple of steps that maybe people and companies can think about in terms of, you know, roles and responsibilities, KPIs and initiatives to ensure that DIMB actually becomes that priority, both at the leadership and the IC level? Yeah. So first, I would say it's making it a business priority, as you said. If it's left just to your people operations team and it's not at HubSpot, it's a strategic objective for the organization. So I talk about it, certainly, but Yamini talks about it. So too does Chris Hogan, who runs our central corporate strategy team. It, the power comes from hearing from all of us and our CFO talking about it with investors. That's where the power comes versus just from your HR department, which don't get me wrong, plays a critical role, but it's so important that it's a business objective. So that's number one. Number two is DINB work is so hard because as you might imagine, it tugs at the heartstrings, not the purse strings. And so when something tar tugs at the heartstrings, it's really hard to say no, but it's actually so imperative that you pick pick a few things to work on versus trying to eat the whole buffet. And the same is true of any strategic objective, but when it comes to DINB, people tend to shy away from that decision because it's really hard to say we're focused on X, not Y. In our case, we as an organization started by focusing on where the ladder was most broken, which was uh, women in senior leadership. We had a lot of women who are managers but struggled with the director and VP layer. That's where we kind of started out. Um, and then what we did was spend a lot of time working on underrepresented minority recruiting and now retention for our BIPOC employees here in the U.S., 
as you might imagine, for our global employees, there's a bit of frustration there. Sometimes it's like, hey, gender is the only metric that we do outside the U.S. It's really, really hard to say to people, we're not going to focus on X, so we nail Y. But it's the only way that you actually make progress on DI&B. The third thing is just creating relevant communities of practice. So even though we are focused on our goals and objectives on gender and underrepresented groups, we still host many, many events internally to celebrate regional diversity, to celebrate local groups. I was lucky enough to join you for a women's panel and, and with our Australia team. And so I think just finding that balance is incredibly important. So being intentional. Um, and then four, you need to make sure your executives are champions of the work. So as an example, I'm lucky enough to be the executive sponsor for our LGBTQ Alliance. Every single executive needs to feel some sort of personal connection to the work and get that feedback. And so that's the final thing I would say as a tip for companies trying to make it all real. Yeah, 100%. Takeaways to me from that was um, make it everybody's responsibility. The ERGs, I think, are a fantastic way. And I, I I totally see what you mean with you know our HR teams, but it's expected, right? It just feels like that's expected from your HR team and that's business as usual. We really need to shake things up if things change. And then the other one is just around like actually measuring impact. So just to give an example, because you brought up the goal around more women in leadership, I had been at HubSpot for, I think maybe, oh, I'm going to get my timelines on myself here wrong, but a good number of years. And I was the first uh, female director in the entire JPAC region, um, which, and I think HubSpot has no problem uh, admitting its faults. There is the diversity report that we actually publish every year that shares a lot of these stats and really holds ourselves accountable, which I think is really awesome. But action was taken on that. And within two years, I've been joined by an, well, a total of five female directors in the region now. So it just sort of shows if you have the right focus in the initiatives, uh, that is, a to me, an incredible period of time to see that level of change. I agree. And I think it's something you all should be so proud of. And shout out to you for leading the way and such an awesome thing to see so many amazing female directors in region. But you raise a really important final point, which is the transparency part of it means there's nowhere to hide. I don't mm -hmm. get to come on podcasts and say we're crushing it on everything because we're not crushing it on everything. And I think the transparency commitment and having to do it every year is part of what drives the behavior change. And I think it's incredibly vital I have to say, much like the culture code, the first time we did it, people were very reluctant to share because it wasn't perfect. We like sharing results. They're all up and to the right. We're doing amazing. And I think being vulnerable and saying we don't have this figured out is really hard and it's so important. It's uncomfortable, but necessary. <laughs> yes. Katie, before I let you go, I know from speaking to you that a lot of people seek you out for mentoring opportunities. And I think there's a good chance that people after listening to this episode are going to reach out and do exactly the same. And I know you're busy. So to free you up some time, we are going to do a live mentoring session right here. Let's do it. I'm going to ask you when people come to you for advice for those uh, career mentorship um, lessons, What's like the number one area of development that people are asking you about or looking for? And this is your opportunity to give advice en masse to that. <laughs> yes. So one of them is, so, you know, the old expression, get stuff done. Oftentimes, you know, GSD is sort of the acronym for it. People will use it to kind of glorify hustle culture. Let's GSD, let's be a GSD person. I actually think my best career advice is pick the thing that no one else wants to take. So if you take on the projects everyone else wants, you're going to get the exact same career results everyone else has. And that's okay, by the way. If you kind of want incremental progress, you should continue taking the high glam, high visibility projects that everyone else wants. The thing that I value most in people are the people who solve 
solve the messy, hairy, challenging problems that no one else wants. And that's kind of how I got my start at HubSpot. No one wanted to run PR at HubSpot. Brian Halligan had written a blog post on why PR and comms were dead. (laughs) Um, And so no one wanted to touch it. And I was like, well, this is incredibly important. And I believe I have really strong courage of conviction that I can fix this. And I'm not alone in that. There have been so many wonderful people at HubSpot, as you well know, who have turned something around, who have taken the lead on something that's hard. And so my biggest advice, career advice, is get something really hard done and take on a really hard project. The second thing is to really think about how much you're complaining versus uh, converting that to action. So as an example... I've done some mentoring conversations where people are like, you know, Katie's out to get me, Kat's out to get me too, you know, this person's never liked me. And I'm like, well, it really sounds based on that, like the organization is not a place. If you've listed seven people who all are out to get you, you should leave. Well, actually, I like them a lot. Well, it doesn't really sound like it. Okay, cool. Have you talked to them about that feedback? So I would just say... I think it's really easy when you're going through a career transition or a life transition to kind of go to the woe is me place. And I'm a big believer in moving to the what are you doing about it? And so I would just say, look at your to-do list. If it's more complaints than actions, flip the script because that's ultimately how you shake out of any sort of funk. And maybe those things that you're complaining about are the messy, tough projects that should be the one that you take on. That's exactly right, Kat. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Katie, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time. And thank you as well for being at the helm and creating such an enjoyable company culture that has kept me personally around for seven years. We're lucky to have you and thank you for sharing your amazing ability to conceptualize some of these tough topics with our audience today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kat, for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Inside HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to and want to hear more stories, please subscribe and check out all resources in our show notes or head to hubspot.com forward slash inside hubspot. We'll catch you on the next episode.